4: Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin
1: Folkham. Okay, and welcome once again to Talking Biotech, um, our podcast that talks about the newest breakthroughs in biotechnology and ways that they really do help farmers, consumers, the environment, and the needy. And today we're going to talk about a real problem here in the state of Florida. And uh, joining me today is our guest host from um, Orland Park, Illinois, uh, Julie Kelly. Hi, Julie.
4: Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, Julie is, um, she's, uh, we kind of came about each other in a funny way. Um, Julie actually and I used to be neighbors, but we didn't know it. Uh, <laughs> she lived in, uh, basically down the street from where I was at the time. Um, Julie's got a, a rather interesting background. She was, assi- um, she's a, uh, has her degree from Eastern Illinois University her background is in um, uh, political policy, and she was a political advisor in Illinois. She did other work like this, and then eventually was um, started doing cooking classes out of her home. Is, is that right?
4: Yes, that's true. Uh, a little more than three years ago.
1: And what kind of cooking classes are these?
4: They are just basically to teach a lot of moms, who I know, uh, who don't know how to cook, really. We're never taught proper cooking techniques or are just simply too busy to prepare dinner a couple of nights a week. So I devised these classes uh, to teach women how to cook or or men, but I only had mostly women uh, to to cook uh, healthy and some fairly simple dinners for their families a few nights a week. And uh, then I do specialty classes. And May, I did a summer appetizer classes. I do a lot of seasonal classes, really introducing people to techniques and ingredients that they're um, unfamiliar with. And it's been very rewarding and really helpful to a lot of the people who I know.
1: And so your uh, your adventures into uh, cooking classes and, and, and teaching others about food kind of built this new awareness of the food movement and what's happening inside food and uh, maybe some of the controversies that are associated with various aspects of uh, of foodism, and do you want to uh, maybe talk about that a little bit and how you know how that shaped your thinking about the issue of transgenic crops?
4: I'd love to. I mean, public policy is really my first love, and politics is a passion. Cooking, kind of. Come second to that. So, this was a great convergence of the two. Um, just reading about the food movement of uh, folks that I refer to as the culinary elite. Uh, we know who they are celebrity chefs, uh, organic industry executives, some food writers. And really, what started with a lot of the impractical advice that they were disseminating. You know, it's great to talk about things like locally sourced ingredients and farm to table, but those sentiments really add more pressure to people who are just trying to put a decent meal on the table a few nights a week. And so I really started to look into some of these folks and what they were saying and the impracticality of it. And that kind of led me to this GMO issue. And I just wrote uh, a column that was posted a few weeks ago, how even up to a year ago, I really couldn't have told you much about anything about GMOs. But as I looked into the food movement and their opposition to biotechnology, uh, I really delved into this issue and became kind of an accidental activist, I refer to it. Uh, and I'm not, I am not—I don't have a science background. I'm a liberal, liberal arts uh, graduate. Um, but, I, you know, I really have taken quite a bit of time looking into that. You've been a great resource. Oh, That's thanks. how we kind of connected. Well, you've taught me a lot. And, um, you know, it really... Uh, I hate I'll use the word infuriates me Um, the opposition to something that is so seems so logical is a cure and remedy for so many issues even the issues that the food movement and the foodies claim that they're concerned about such as global hunger the environment um, issues like that so uh, I've really become passionate about it and continue to write about it and talk about it so that's why I'm really excited to be here today and learn about possible remedies to the citrus greening issue. Um, so uh, yes, that's, I've become quite uh, excited and passionate about these biotech uh, policies.
1: Well, I mean, I'm glad you transitioned us towards citrus, um, towards the discussion of citrus greening and the citrus disease, because this is a problem that even here in the state of Florida, um, an iconic industry is suffering and very few people know it. And when you talk to people, when I speak to people in public places and in public fora, they don't know about citrus greening, which is really imperiling an industry that uh, is is uh, a huge part of agriculture in the state of Florida. And uh, what we'll talk more about this disease today with um, the, Rick Cress, uh, who's the president of Southern Garden Citrus, and this is down in Cluiston, so down at the end of Lake Okeechobee, a southern end, just north of Miami, a, a touch. Well, actually, quite a touch. It's probably about three hours. Um, but Southern Gardens—they're a—they're um, one of the big growers here in the state, and one of the big suppliers of um, NFC orange juice. We call it the not-from-concentrate. Um, and they're—they're um, they're doing some stuff to use biotech solutions potentially in citrus greening. So, what do you know about citrus greening, Julie?
4: Well, I've learned a lot <laughs> in the last few days. But I have to say, even someone like me who is feels like pretty aware of what's happening in our food system. Uh, this is something that is really not on my radar screen. So to that extent, I'm sure most people are unaware of what a threat this is um, and how quickly it has spread. And now I know that there are a few cases out in California, I believe that originated from one one tree that was imported from China as a gift. And uh, it's, it's frightening uh, because... Of course, oranges are so prevalent, not only in households, but in schools now. I know that oranges, looking into food policy, especially a school lunch policy, oranges are one of the most highly used fruits to uh, uh, fulfill the requirements for daily fruit intake because it's easy and they're not as perishable as some other fruit. So it's um, it's really been an eye-opener looking into this uh, this disease and um, how devastating it is to the Florida citrus industry and potentially to another state like California.
1: Yeah, for for me, it's been a real eye-opener, too, because I work in horticulture. I work with the state's fruit and vegetable industries, and it's a real, um, it was, when I first moved here in 2012, or 2002, it was so beautiful to drive from downstate to the north um, end of Florida, where we don't have much citrus here. But in the north end, but when you're down in the south and you go by these miles and miles and miles of dark green trees that are beautiful with the uh, oranges that are hanging on them in the blue sky, and it was just such a beautiful image. And now you go by the same groves, and some of them are okay, but a lot of them have been abandoned. They're just uh, shells of them former selves, with uh, gray trees, uh, no, or a few leaves, and the ones that are there are yellow, maybe with some small fruits. And um, it just is a reminder of how so much of agriculture hangs on a razor's edge. And it's also a reminder that, you know, in 2005, when this thing really hit, there was a lot of movement. But people said, or the companies said, well, stay away from uh, GMOs. We don't want our customers. Our customers won't accept them. Our customers won't accept them. And I think that that really laid the groundwork for trying other solutions, which is great. And some of them show a little bit of help. But for the most part, the best solutions appear to be transgenic and we haven't had access to those.
4: Well, and Kevin, I know you and I have had a few um, email conversations about better communication to the public about the benefits of um, genetic engineering. And this is a perfect example. I think if consumers were more aware the devastation of this disease and all the methods that have been tried over the last decade, I mean, I just read that the USDA was relying on predatory wasps I believe in one part to get rid of the the bug that transmits this bacteria um, you know consumers just generally need to know how this technology not just to create frankenfoods or superfoods but to alleviate some of these real problems in our agricultural system and as you said, on a razor's edge. I mean, here's just one small bug, um, and California is the one that I was looking at more recently. And just potentially wipe out an entire uh, crop and uh, a necessary crop that thousands of farmers rely on, and we all rely on to some extent. And these, you know, conventional methods that are used because biotechnology has been vilified for, uh, and a lot of in my view anyway, ideological reasons for the most part, Um, it's really delayed but could have been not a quicker remedy but uh, a better remedy. And that's really a failure and hopefully can be used as a message to consumers that this is really the potential that can be unlocked through uh, biotechnology, genetic engineering.
1: Okay, so now on uh, Talking Biotech and our discussion of the citrus greening disease, or um, what Honglongbing, as it's technically called, or HLB, um, is uh, Rick Cress from Southern Gardens. Hi, Rick. Good morning. Yeah, um, yeah how's everything down in Clewiston today?
2: Uh, hot, humid, and a typical Florida summer day.
1: Yeah, so that's uh, no surprise down there. That's uh, a little bit further down state, so nice and warm. So really what we... Yeah. Well, Julie and I had a little bit of a discussion about HLB and about the problem of citrus greening. And um, what we wanted to discuss with you were just some of Southern Gardens' solutions and, and maybe some of the other solutions posed by others in the state to address this problem. So, can you first start out by telling us a little bit about the problem of citrus greening and HLB?
2: Well, it's a disease that's been in the world for many, many years uh, throughout the citrus-producing regions. Uh, we believe, suspect it, that it came into Florida from, from the Far East. Um, really became an issue in the major-producing citrus regions in 2004, 2005. Um, Brazil, it was confirmed about 18 months ahead of Florida and then confirmed in Florida in late 2005. But it's a bacterial disease that Really affects the nutrient delivery system of the citrus tree itself, and so you you have a bacteria that is transmitted by an insect into a healthy tree. This bacteria plugs up the phloem, which is the nutrient delivery system of the tree, and it and it prevents the tree from getting the proper nutrients it needs to grow.
4: Rick, how is this transmitted from tree uh, to tree? Because it seems like it spreads pretty quickly.
2: It is transmitted by an insect, a microscopic insect, called the Asian citrus psyllid. Uh, this is an insect that is as prevalent as the mosquito here in Florida. Our climate here in Florida, being hot, humid, and a lot of rain and, and moisture, allows this insect to um, reproduce very quickly. It's, it's drawn to any form of citrus, we haven't found a real host tree or a host plant other than, than something like it related to citrus. And, and the insect travels from an infected tree to a healthy tree, and, and it's attracted to the new flush of the tree. Mm-hmm. The flush is the new growth that comes out of a citrus tree. Because of our climate and, and growing conditions here in Florida, we, we have a significant amount of flush all the time, and this insect heads towards these new leaves that are very soft and tender compared to a a more developed leaf, and they'll they'll in, they'll literally inject the bacteria into the leaf, and then the bacteria is now in the tree.
1: And that's p- pretty amazing because you see the citrus psyllid when you go downstate and you uh, you during the right time of year and you touch a flush of tree of the tree, it's not a single psyllid that takes off. These are clouds of insects that just are are massive in number, and really do show the the degree of um of of, of transmissibility of this thing.
2: Yes, yes.
4: What has been done uh, over the last several years to try to mitigate this problem and and get rid of it?
2: <laughs> when the disease was first found in Florida in two thousand and five, the approach that was taken um, by our company, as well as as other growers, again, it was found here in Southwest Florida, and over on the East Coast, two commercial groves that were um, confirmed as having the disease, and and immediately the industry said we better learn as much as we can about this disease, and we found out that there wasn't a lot, a lot, there, there wasn't a lot of available information to help us with it. It was something that had been in the world. A lot of us traveled to Brazil to understand what they were doing. Um, and, and we learned at the time that the best practice 10 years ago was to inspect your groves as frequently as possible. Um, find an, if you found an infected tree, pull it out, take steps to control the insect, uh, and by control, basically the application of chemicals to kill the insect And then finally, if you're going to replant any trees, make sure you use disease-free trees. And that was the practice that was put into place, um, in the, in the original regions where it was found. And we were, we were removing a lot of trees. And as the disease spread through the state of Florida, many growers looked at it and said, I can't afford to take out all of these trees. I've got to look for alternative solutions that, that might be considered. And as a result, the disease pretty much spread through all 32 citrus-producing counties in Florida in the span of three years.
1: So we even have it up north in Florida now that, in my end, we have uh, groves that have been hit pretty hard. Uh, Even our teaching grove at the university has some greening in the Valencia block. That's pretty severe. Um, It looks like uh, this is almost probably at this point 100% of the trees in the state.
2: I think it would I think it's safe to say that every grove in the state of Florida has infection. To state that every tree is infected would be would be potential but but there's no really way of confirming it but the fact that every grove in the state is is affected to some level is pretty significant.
4: So if you can explain just from a layman's uh, perspective, so what happens to the citrus to the actual orange I believe it's also impacted? Uh, Limes as well, but what happens to the actual fruit then?
2: The the tree is infected. The phloem is plugged to varying degrees of uh, due to the bacteria, so it's not getting the nutrients it needs. And when we find the disease in a mature tree, it's normally in a clump of leaves or a branch, which means it's you know it's it's working its way through the tree. As this tree becomes more infected the fruit just doesn't grow as well as it should. It's not getting the nutrients. And, and then in, in the case of the tree that's infected, it's like any other living function. When it's sick, it does everything it can to survive. So it's putting all of its strength into maintaining its structure and so on. The fruit itself, uh, as produced, is predominantly much smaller. It's misshapen. It, it, it doesn't color. As well as it should, and when you get right down to it, the orange that comes off a greening tree is just basically less sweet than than a mature orange, and and it and the orange doesn't mature. Generally, the sweetness of the orange is 10 to 15 percent less than what a, a normal mature orange would look like, um, and 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 the flavor that comes off of this this infected orange is predominantly less sweet but then depending on the individual that is actually tasting it there may be some other descriptive off flavors that that can be present but the bottom line is it's just not as sweet
1: and so you know we have a problem with a so an infection in the trees that's spread by an insect how far has this been moving throughout the united states and into other citrus areas of our nation
2: well there's three predominant areas florida texas and california it's it's through the state of Florida, it's the insect and the disease is, has been detected in the state of Texas, which is predominantly grapefruit. The insects have been detected in California, um, and as recently as earlier this week, the second confirmed uh, infected tree in the state of California was found. Um, both con- confirmation of, of infection have been found in um, what we call backyards homeowners where our where citrus tree was detected. There have been no reported incidents of the disease being detected in commercial groves in California yet.
1: And were these imported trees from Florida or somehow other acquired, or how is the disease moving there?
2: Well, Mexico Mexico certainly has a significant problem with the disease. They have a high population of the insect, and they also have the disease and the insect's The insects move.
4: So once it's detected, say, in in the California uh, circumstance right now, how do they prevent that from spreading quickly based on what's happened in Florida? What are they doing to prevent that?
2: This bacteria uh, that causes this disease has never been cultured. We don't know how to grow it in order to kill it. There's a lot of research being done on that. But when when it reaches California, um, it, it it could have, you know the challenge is going to be um, does it spread as fast as it did here in Florida? California has has an advantage over Florida in that they don't have the same climate we do here. Mm-hmm. Um, they control their water when they have it. Um, and so they don't have the humidity and everything else that we deal with. Like. So I'm not sure that they have the psyllid populations to the same level that we did here in Florida. Um, but the challenge is going to be, until there is a way to kill the bacteria in the tree and or have another solution that will prevent um, the disease from getting into the tree, the only sure thing is going to be removing infected trees. And that's a very tough call. From a
1: financial perspective, well, and a, and a logistic one. You're talking about uh, you know millions and millions of trees, and I've seen it down in southern Florida, and it's amazing how uh, just the magnitude of this issue. And so maybe we could tr- transition to, over to solutions. And what are some of the ways that the industry has been working? And this is happening on many levels. But what are some of the ways that the industry has been working to mitigate the uh, symptoms and still remain productive?
2: One of the first things that that the industry did in a variety of different ways was to basically increase and improve the nutritional condition of the trees here in Florida, coming up with adding you know various micronutrients and and nutritional applications with the hopes that the the trees could become stronger to um, withstand the disease. Sitting here today, I can I can say and I think the industry will con- concur there's two things we've learned about this disease number 1 you have to have a good nutritional program and number 2 you can't wait to find the insect you have to assume it's there and treat for it because once you wait to find the insect it's too late because you didn't find the only one you found all of its um all of its brothers and sisters too research wise there are a variety a multitude a huge portfolio of projects that, that are in place. I think last count within the industry says there's about 135 different research projects being looked at. Anything from short-term therapeutic type um, thing all the way through to use of biotechnology and genetic engineering. The, the researchers within the world that are familiar with citrus have indicated that The ultimate solution to this disease will be biotechnology. But today, we've got to find something that will work to keep the trees alive long enough to get to an ultimate solution of biotech.
1: Well, and this is one of the challenges in any biotech application is you're only as good as the foundational germplasm that the biotech solution is introduced to. So in other words, you can't engineer yourself into a perfect tree from something that's completely unimproved. And citrus is two parts. It's a rootstock and a scion. And so you're talking about a root system that needs to be bred that connects to some sort of a, a, a scion or the top part of the tree that also has to have uh, has to have excellent fruit quality. So now you're talking about two really different issues. You need to have good breeding of two different tree parts Plus, um, other plus now maybe potentially a biotech solution on top of that. And so I know that there's been, at least at University of Florida and at USDA, we've, there's been a lot of uh, work dedicated towards genetic <coughs> improvement of rootstocks and scions, and uh, some good stuff on the way. And that's exciting because some of the biotech solutions may find uh, good residents inside these new genetic backgrounds. And so what are some of the biotech solutions that have been proposed either by Southern Gardens or by the citrus industry in general?
2: Well, from a Southern Gardens perspective, we've had, you know, we started doing um, research back in 2006, and it's continued. One of the key areas that we're looking at today is the use of a gene from, from the current um, plant, spinach. It's already in the food supply. We're having some very favorable success with trees that uh, have been developed utilizing um, various gene constructs from this spinach defensin. Uh, we have field trials. We have we have a variety of different tests that are going on that that show that we are getting tolerance. Um, the ideal situation is we would like to have resistance right out of the gate. But to your point about how it takes time to get. The, the perfect tree developed, will accept tolerance and continue to work towards resistance. Now, that's, that spinach defense and work is towards a um, disease-resistant tree. At the same time, we're doing research on what we term the development of an insect-resistant tree with the idea that down the road we can combine both technologies so that if there's an insect that may be attracted to the citrus tree, the resistant the insect resistant aspect will repel it and if it should get through to the tree the disease resistant characteristics will will prevent the tree from becoming infected that's just that's just a couple of projects that we're doing on our end there's comparable work being done both as you say at the University of Florida at the USDA here in Florida and across the country in a variety of different research programs looking for what form of biotechnology Um, might work or what short-term solutions might work Uh, whether it be field applications or tree applications or nursery applications there's a lot of effort to find a solution sooner rather than later the challenge is we're working with a tree and a tree takes time to develop and it's not like a corn plant where you can basically do it every year and evaluate what you're doing the tree takes time and, and, and time is not on our side in that regard.
4: How would the spinach gene actually, in your view, how would that help? How would that work?
2: Well, basically, by, by placing this gene in the tree, in, in, the, in the plant itself, it weakens the cell structure of the bacteria and the bacteria can't reproduce. That's the scientific approach. From the... From the functional or consumer approach, if this technology proves, as it has so far, the spinach, this is something that's already in the food supply. It's not like we're taking a gene from something that is an allergen or known to be toxic or, or comes from some, some other form of life. We're staying within the food supply and, and feel that this is a major factor.
1: It's important to note that because we plants make chemicals to defend themselves, and in this case, it's a peptide called a defensin. Uh, you mentioned before a defensin is just one of a series of um, what what they call metallothionins, I believe. It's a it's a kind it's a class of proteins which has a, uh, a, a very specific molecular structure and has a role in plant defense. And it's a way that spinach and I'm sure and certainly other uh, organisms. Uh, other plants defend themselves against um, bacterial pathogens and in this case just moving this um, particular one from spinach which for whatever reason spinach uh, has evolved near the ground it's been selected near the ground is pretty good with dealing with uh, um, bacterial pathogens and so this is a case where now this uh, this mechanism has now been transferred into citrus how many years has it shown some level of durable resistance or tolerance i should say
2: our first field trials were put in the ground in 2009 and and we're continuing to see favorable results on on trees that are in the field or in the greenhouse that are being tested.
1: That's really good. To your
2: point about defensins, it should be noted that humans have millions and billions of defensins within their own within every body. That's how that's how we we prevent and resist a lot of different diseases because of the defense and mechanism that we all have in our systems.
4: Rick, um, how does the citrus industry, the major juice producers, feel about these approaches?
2: Everyone within the industry would hope that we could find a solution to this disease that would be quick, convenient, and would be accepted by all. Um, At the same time, recognizing that we haven't found that solution yet, there there's a lot of discussion a lot of work towards if it is a biotech solution and that's the only solution then we're going to have to work our way through it and figure it out the the challenge for in this process as we've approached it from our own company perspective we see four areas that have to be addressed we have research we have regulatory we have agriculture and we have the consumer And all of the first three Can be very successful, but we have to take care of the fourth point being the consumer acceptance. The opportunity in citrus is compared to other biotech products that are out there today, as we define it, is a necessity versus a nicety. We're in a situation in the citrus industry that if biotech is the only answer, it's a necessity to keep this industry in the United States viable. And, and something that will grow for the future, as well as the world. Um, other current biotechs sometimes are more of a nicety that, that come into play agriculturally. The other factor here, though, is that, that is really important related to the citrus and biotech. Today, in order to control this insect, there are, is a significant amount of chemicals being applied to the groves. Mm-hmm. If, if a disease-resistant solution is developed, from a biotech perspective we have the opportunity to significantly reduce and/ or eliminate a lot of chemicals that are today going into the environment and that's important to everybody.
4: Rick I don't know that we touched upon the economic impact that this has uh, how this has affected the industry financially in Florida. can you talk a little bit about those numbers
2: We as a company have lost over 800,000 trees to this disease, which was roughly a third of our tree population. Um, if you look at the cost that the industry has incurred, um, it's it's easy to say that that the cost of a grower today to deal with the disease, depending on how, how much they were doing before the disease came in, could be anywhere from 50 to 100% more than what they were spending 10 years ago. That's a significant factor in an economy today, where everybody, when they go to the grocery store, is watching what they're spending their money on.
1: And I think what people don't appreciate necessarily is the infrastructure for how citrus is produced and how it's uh, how it's packed and, and shipped and everything else. Getting trees from groves to the pro- to the packing houses or to the processing plants, the employees at processing plants. The uh, the there's so many levels that are involved in the citrus industry that now that we're um, you know ten years into this I think the workforce has been significantly cut the number of packing houses is down massively and uh, the and really this year they came in at what a million and three boxes of of citrus where the industry needs to maintain a million boxes in order to remain um, above water so we're really what? we're really at the edge right. What?
2: Let's 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 correct that, Kevin. Okay. Um, the estimate coming into this year was at was at one hundred and eight one hundred and eight million boxes. Um, it ended up at ninety six point seven million boxes, the lowest the lowest crop size in Florida in well over fifty years. But to your point, we are fast approaching. If we if we decline significantly more in crop size. We've already commented related to the packing houses that have, have closed up, but if processing operations start to close up, it's not an operation that you, you can mothball for a couple of years and then start it back up again. If a processing plant closes down, it doesn't open back up.
1: And so it really underscores the immediate need for a, a solution and that we don't we can't breed our way out of this very quickly. This requires... Not only the development of a durable solution, but then the um, you then have to generate sixty million trees. And so, where where is the biotech solution now in the regulatory pipeline?
2: Right now, today, there is no question that, from a regulatory perspective, and there are and, and related to Florida, there are four specific agencies involved. On the federal front, you have EPA. USDA, and FDA, and on the state front you have the Florida Department of Agriculture. Every one of these agencies is very well versed in the issue and the challenges and the awareness that we need a solution sooner rather than later. Each one of these agencies have their own um, areas of responsibility. EPA protects the environment, USDA protects agriculture, FDA protects the food supply. They all have a job to do. Uh, everything that they do is done by, by federal statute and regulations, so it's not that they make it up as they go. They follow the law, but they're willing to work. They're working with us as a company, and they're certainly working with the industry to do whatever is needed to get this um, down the road. From a solution perspective, um, if it's an ultimate biotech solution and, and using ours as an example, we still could be um, three to five years away from from being in a position to say we've got something that is commercial and viable. Uh, at the same time, to your point, when there's 60 million trees in the state of Florida today being oranges and grapefruits predominantly, uh, and a nursery capacity of 3 million trees a year approximately, that's a significant length of time. So... Regulatory-wise, we've got the assistance, we've got the support, and everybody's everybody's working together on it. But we just have to collect the data and collect the information to go forward.
4: And, Rick, you also brought up the most important point, uh, as consumers be, will be the most wary uh, and may, perhaps skeptical about this because they're not knowledgeable about <laughs> devastation. Um, how do you take this time to to try to convince or persuade consumers that this may be the only solution?
2: Julie, in the form related to citrus, whether it's us as a company or the industry, we've been working very hard over the last period of years to continue to get the message out that citrus has a significant problem. And and if we can't find a solution and biotech is the only solution, then then the decision has to be made can we live without citrus, and so on. Um, it's, it's just a process of, of working through, because it's not just citrus that comes into play today. There's a lot of other opportunities related to biotech that are coming down the road that in order to have a, a sustainable and, and economical food supply, we, we have to be able to use science in order to continue to, to feed the world. And so agriculturally, every aspect has to has to do a better job of of helping the consumers understand where their food supply comes from.
1: and And I like this approach in citrus because it seems a lot similar to papaya and how that rescued the industry in Hawaii, in that this isn't you know one of the big six biotech companies doing this, and that it's efforts that are public and private that are attempting to find solutions. Are you amazed at the pushback from groups that already indicate that transgenic citrus is on the market and that uh, some of the companies have even been labeling their products as, you know, non-GMO or um, that there's been some sort of resistance to this already?
2: It's it's very consistent with, with, with how, it, how it seems to work in the, um, in the public world. Um, you know, with today's social media... It's, it's very opportunistic and, and um, efficient. I don't know if that's the right word, but it, it just – you have the ability to share information very quickly in a lot of places, and it may not always be exactly right or may not portray the exact solution. And, again, we just have to work our way through it um, because let's, let's look at it this way. If we can't find a solution here in Florida that, that will pro, that will protect the industry and allow for orange juice and citrus fruit in the United States to be produced, then we we are faced with the opportunity or the, the issue that significant amount of product, assuming some of these other countries can solve the problem in some shape or form, it will all be imported. It won't be a domestic product anymore. Florida orange juice as we know it, won't exist the one thing in our favor and the reason why the florida industry will survive is no other country no other region in the world can compare to florida orange juice quality day in and day out that is an important factor and so we have to work towards that
1: well and it's an industry that those of us who have looked at it over the years and studied where it's been has gone through so many challenges ever since its inception and uh, yeah, this this one too, I think we will see. Um, it won't be the same citrus industry as it was in the front end, but it will be a citrus industry here. And with all the solutions and the people I see spending their time daily on this, and and some of the most brilliant minds in, in horticulture and in, in, in tree biology are thinking about this. Um, I'm remaining somewhat um, optimistic and 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 hope uh, hope for the best for Southern Gardens in your efforts.
2: You're right. We have significant challenges in front of us in the citrus industry. But in today's business world, there isn't a business that doesn't have a significant challenge. And, and that's how we approach it here, is, okay, we've got some challenges, but so does every other business. So let's work together, let's figure it out, and let's adapt to what's coming down the road. You're right. The industry won't ever be what it was But, man, it doesn't take long to go back and look at a lot of other industries to say the same thing. They adapted, they changed, they're moving forward. We'll do the same.
1: So, Rick, if people want to learn more about the problem of citrus greening and what the industry is doing, where do you think the best resources are and where should they begin their examination of this?
2: The best source of information related to this citrus greening disease is the website citrusrdf.org. Which connects to the Citrus Research and Development Foundation, the primary entity that manages and coordinates all of the research and communication related to this disease.
1: Okay, and Julie, where can people find you on social media or um, or your website for your business?
4: My website is now You Are Cooking, so it's now the letters You Are Cooking uh, dot org, and then my. Um, Twitter is Julie underscore Kelly, K
1: E L 2. Okay, on that, uh, on that note, we'll uh, conclude today's Talking Biotech interview. Um, that's with um, Rick Crest from Southern Gardens uh, and uh, our guest host, Julie Kelly, uh, talking about the transgenic citrus solutions that just may end this uh, horrible scourge of citrus greening. We'll be right back in just a moment.
3: Hi Talking Biotechers, this is Vern Blathek of the Vern Blathek Science Power Hour. While on hiatus from my podcast, I'm promoting the Talking Biotech podcast. So what can you do to help us spread the message? Well, what you can do is tell others, tell a friend, tell someone you don't like, scratch Talking Biotech podcast into a bathroom wall with Chipotle of all, you can write a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Spread the word. Spread the word on Twitter. Take other steps to tell others that you found something exciting here. The bottom line is, this is all about how science can help people and move innovation to application with good communication. Most of all, here's an opportunity to share the Talking Biotech podcast with a larger audience and helping people see how science can bring us new and exciting opportunities to help people, the environment, the farmers, and most of all, the needy. I'm Vern Blesek, and back to
1: Talking Biotech. Yeah, talk to... Back to Talking Biotech. Uh, Very good from uh, Vern Blazek. Thank you very much for uh, providing that middle content on on the Talking Biotech podcast. Uh, So, as you've noticed, I really haven't talked about the situation last week. I said my piece about it, and uh, really the best thing right now is to go back to normal because it's not the bumps in the road that are going to solve this problem, it's going to be continued outreach and education. around the really beautiful parts of technology that can help um all of the things that we care about and uh, i do want to say though thank you to all of you who have really reached out with your emails your kind words on social media and uh certainly uh those of you who've uh written donations to the program that kind of thing it's overwhelming and uh there's day times every day uh, where seriously I say I quit. I do not want to do this anymore. I mean science. I mean all of science. Just get the hell out of it, um, because it, it it takes a toll. And um, but at the same time, right after I completely resign to the idea, then I get a wonderfully glowing uh, email from a student that says, "Thank you for helping me understand this." And uh, I think that uh, that is what. Uh, keeps me going. So thank you very much for all of this. So uh, I really wanted to couple the discussion of citrus greening disease and biotech solutions with a session on citrus um, breeding. And I work with some of the best citrus breeders on the planet um, between uh, Dr. Uh, Fred Gemitter, Dr. Jude Grosser, Dr. Uh, Jose Chaparro. We have some outstanding talent at the University of Florida to bring the next generation of citrus trees to the fore, uh, just through traditional breeding. And whether you're doing that by looking at uh, the the rootstocks or the top part of the tree, which I forget what they call this, the scion part, um, there's ways that you can engineer one or the other uh, or breed one or the other to confer some enhanced tolerance to citrus greening disease. And in the next couple of weeks, hopefully maybe even next weekend, I should have uh, one of those citrus breeders to talk to us about the origins of citrus, what is citrus, and the diversity of the different plants we have, and how we're addressing citrus greening disease from using that kind of approach, Um, traditional breeding, as well as marker-assisted breeding, and then uh, some of the tricks that University of Florida and uh, Dr. Jude Grosser are introducing. That are really interesting angles. Uh, not genetic engineering per se, no genes are spliced necessarily, in some cases they are, but some of his approaches are truly novel and uh, he's a real expert and I would love to have him on. So, working on that for this week, hopefully to have on next week. But instead of uh, continuing with additional, um, additional interviews today. I'd instead like to go back to some of your questions as I've been accumulating quite a set over the last few weeks. And uh, I'll reach out, I'll mention it this time, I did get a couple questions on Indian suicides in the last few weeks. I will be speaking in person with Dr. Ronald Herring at Cornell University in the next few weeks, and we will have a, a one-on-one discussion about Indian suicides in a standalone episode of Talking Biotech. So uh, he's the expert. So we'll uh, have a good discussion there. So what are some of the questions I've been receiving lately? And uh, one of them is, what is your view on genetic of, of labeling of genetically modified foods? And this is a really important one for me because I do think labels are important. They tell us a lot about what's happening inside a, a food. And I'm a label reader. Um, as someone who's very interested in his health, I'm very careful in av- avoiding, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of lots of processed sugar, don't like the way it makes me feel. Uh, it causes me to put on some weight pretty fast. So as someone who watches that, I, I look at those things and even in like salad dressing. I see the content of how much sugar shows up in surprising places. And uh, so labels mean something to me. And under the current FDA rules, they require any potentially harmful ingredients to be noted on that label. And we even see those extreme examples that uh, this product has been processed in a factory that may have once uh, perform processing of peanut-related products in the 1980s, I mean, those labels are everywhere because they're critical for the health of individuals, that even if it's someone with a very unusual allergy, that they should be notified that if there's something in that package that can harm them, they, they do need to be on alert, and it's because labels mean something that we should not pollute them with meaningless information. And this is what's really important for us to remember here. It's been shown that the ingredients that are derived from transgenic or genetically modified plants are are really equivalent or virtually equivalent to those from non-transgenic sources. And my favorite example is something like sucrose or table sugar from a GM sugar beet is equivalent to something uh, from a non-GM sugar beet or an organic sugar beet. It's sucrose. It's it's there's not something that come there's no DNA, there's no protein, at least not that's probably even detectable. So that's a really important difference why would you label something as being different when the two products are the same? Why that's important is because if we do label something as non GMO, how do you know it really is if there's no test to determine if there's a gene or protein in there? How do you do it? Well, what it means is that you either have to have extremely expensive and testing uh, sensitive testing equipment, or you have to follow over the supply chain. You have to certify the farm and make sure everywhere from that farm to that product, you see that it is not containing a transgenic uh, derivative or a product from a genetic plant or a genetically engineered plant. So, you see how this adds a layer of expense because no one's going to do this for free. And why would we care about adding expense when it it doesn't matter? You know, it makes uh, it makes some moms in California feel a little better. You know, and that and that's about it. Um, the other big thought on this is that the laws have been designed with huge numbers of exemptions. And when you look at what is going to be covered, what isn't covered, they would demand that packages of food in the grocery store be labeled, but things in restaurants, eh, no problem. And it's really kind of funny because if these are dangerous, horrible ingredients, then you really want them labeled in all their contexts. But of course, you know, people are very careful about what that would do to restaurants and driving up their costs. And restaurateurs and beverage suppliers were very careful to get exemptions throughout um, many of the different uh, laws that were proposed. However, the other big reason for this is that scientifically, a lot of the uh, laws were written were very poor and actually mentioned things like... um, uh, uh, somatic hybrids, which we will learn about in the citrus greening discussion. Uh, somatic hybrids where no genes are spliced, but where nuclei of multiple organisms are fused together, mixing those genomes together. Something nature does on its own, but here we're assisting nature by doing this in the laboratory. And those would have to be light labeled as GMOs, even though no genes are spliced or transferred from one to another. Um, At least that was true in California, and I I think in others as well. Um, In Hawaii, even uh, artificially doubled chromosomes, such as seedless watermelons, are labeled or are noted and banned as genetically modified. So the laws are not scientific, and that's always a problem too, because now other uh, types of genetic improvements are being lumped in with recombinant DNA-based technologies. And that isn't always the best way for us to solve that problem. For me, the most compelling reason of why we shouldn't label is because those wishing to not consume those ingredients, who want that label to differentiate a transgenic from a non-transgenic product, they can purchase those products already. The non-GMO project is uh, growing by leaps and bounds, that they label their products as saying GMO-free, and that's great, and maybe they test that. I don't know if they do or they don't, or they just take their word for it, but the uh, they claim those products are gm free and there you go you've got the label you can pick what you want Uh, it doesn't burden the rest of us by supporting a new and clunky infrastructure and of course organic food is also uh, by definition not using transgenic organisms at least at this point so those options are available for people who really want to tell the difference And I'm asked all the time, could there be a labeling system that you'd be happy with? And I think there are. Um, The problem is, is that right now, all of the efforts have been activist inspired. They uh, really seek to differentiate products in the uh, interest of once it's labeled, then you can work on boycotts and bans. And people have clearly articulated that. That came from Jeffrey Smith and uh, Vandana Shiva and others who said, once we can label it, then we can ban it. And, and to a scientist, it kind of seems silly that why would we possibly want to identify a safe, wholesome food so that it could be separated from other safe, wholesome food? And as somebody who sees the decreased funding for science and the need for uh, less government involvement in regulation, that creating a new bureaucracy simply to tell how a plant was made or how a product was made is not a good use of federal funds or of taxpayer funds. And I, I think that it's something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So another question that came in, um, what do you think of Scotland's decision to ban the growing of genetically modified crops? And this is a really interesting one because it's kind of um, uh, a convenient way for politicians to cave into to uh, activists and show their good politicians towing the line in the name of public interest and uh, what it shows uh, it really isn't so much of an issue it's kind of like buying a bicycle for a fish. Uh, Scotland doesn't really have any transgenic crop technology uh, doesn't really have the opportunity for it. like there's nothing they don't grow corn uh, corn soy, cotton or sugar beets uh, or papayas uh, or squash. Um, it's easy to opt out of something that you don't have an immediate need for. Okay, I, you don't need it, so let's just say, okay, we're not going to use it. It's like a, um, it's like a chef really taking a firm stand on not buying a construction helmet. I will not buy that helmet. Well, you don't need it, so so you can gain any public sentiment by standing firm to your decision to uh, not to ban something that you don't use anyway. I know it's confusing. Uh, the problem is is that now Scottish farmers, let's say there's an event where a transgenic solution could be meaningful, some, such as something around the potato industry, um, where there's a catastrophic problem, like in citrus screening. And how do you respond fast if you have taken the best rapid tools off of the table? Now, we already know that there are potatoes available that are resistant to pests. The Bt potato was very successful at one time. And uh, also fungus-resistant fungus, uh, fungus potatoes. Those are coming along very well. And uh, you could cut the amount of fungicide and insecticide needed to grow potatoes. And that's really an environmentally friendly, sustainable solution that would be great for Scottish farmers. And if you talk about living in a, and I guess some of the politicians were saying our our rich green tradition, well, well, nothing much greener than cutting out pesticides and insecticides and uh, fungicides and insecticides. And uh, those are solutions that the GM potatoes could bring. And also should note that uh, the Scottish uh, decision only is to ban the growing of crops and that there's no mention on banning imports. And that's and that's because the EU certainly imports tons of soy and corn, and that's what they use to feed livestock. So so those are the two questions that I'll handle for today. If you have questions, send them to me at talkingbiotech at com, or reach me on Twitter at, at Talking Biotech. And um of course, we're going to try to do a Facebook page one of these days, but right now my hands have been a little bit full, trying to keep myself from uh, uh, getting too frazzled by crazy people, um, and at the same time, you know, running a department and uh, keeping my research program alive. But everything's coming out rosy because um, of wonderful people like you that, that really do care about the science, and uh, we're going to keep talking about that, and we're going to keep communicating that in this forum. So I'll bring it to a close today. In the next couple of weeks, we will have a discussion about breeding of sugar beets. We'll have, uh, of course, citrus, and we'll have a couple guests for citrus. We also will be talking about tomato breeding and some innovations in tomato biotechnology that also stand to cut um, antimicrobial use significantly, especially in a place like Florida. So lots of really exciting and compelling uh, interviews coming forward. Uh, Exciting and compelling because the guests are great and and the people are wonderful and very excited about bringing those to you. So I'll stop there and uh, actually finishing right at the one hour mark. So thank you for listening to Talking Biotech.
4: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please
1: write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra